Hey, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant. And uh, with me is for a change is Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. And also, actually, not for a change. Evan is uh, and I actually are inseparable, you know, except uh, after like after work, right? And uh, uh, Henry French here is our sound engineer, and we are joined today by John D. Spears, who is one of the preeminent value investors and. We can hear all about um, John and his career and about the uh, art and science of buying low and selling high in just a moment. But Evan, we have news. I expect it might not be such hot news by the time our voices are heard, but um, I understand the Fed has uh, arrived at a decision today. We're talking on Wednesday, uh, June, uh, June, what is it? Uh, June 14th? 14th. Oh, yeah. All the, day. The Ides of June? Okay. So what'd they say? Nothing, but apparently they said it hawkishly. They they, 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 they stood still, did not raise rates, but I've been told that it's a hawkish pause. Oh, so like a, um, uh, watch your step? I actually think Jay Powell, when he got up to the presser, did caca, like a, a hawk. <laughs> All right. So, uh, <laughs> we are stuck with a funds rate of what? Uh, five something, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I knew sooner or later they would do nothing and today is the day. Um, let me see. So, uh, uh, John, you are with us for the first time, I think. You Indeed, yes. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. this is probably the the first time with this kind of technology and procedure. Well, this is... Um, this is uh, done, I've done very Zoom, fast, Zoom yeah. calls and yeah. things, but that not, is nothing, no, not, nothing uh, like Zoom. We, no. don't, uh, we don't go in for Zoom around here. This is a pure voice, which gives free play to the imagination and to the ears. Wonderful. Yeah. So I'm not being photographed. Or, no. no. So it's like listening to a ball game on the radio. You can just, you can see it in your mind say, much more vividly than the television cameras. Yes, projecting. yes, yeah. indeed. Okay. So, um, uh, John, to introduce you uh, uh, somewhat cursorily, uh, as uh, a Chicagoan um, born in 1948, which uh, leads me to say, John, you have a little bit uh, less experience in this business than some people around this table, but I'll let that pass for now. <laughs> and um, you look you look 25 to me, Jim. Why, thank you. You can stay for dinner too, John. Thank you. <laughs> and um, John is uh, uh, is by trade and uh, by I think temperament. Uh, the species and genius, genus of value investor. I wouldn't say a genius, but I'm certainly a student. Uh, of, I, I, of, that, was a, that was a Freudian slip, which was purely intentional. Um, so, John, uh, you uh, worked for many years for the firm of Tweedy Brown, and uh, you uh, began your investment career at the age of, what, uh, four or five months? <laughs> I think you said you were in your bio. <laughs> That's right. There was a, a Graham, Graham Dodd and Cottle was under my pillow. Yeah. No. Um, and, uh, and and here we are some years later. I wanted to, to, to add, invite you to tell us about your arrival at Tweedy Brown. You can you can skip the the business about uh, uh, pulling crabgrass for 50 cents an hour and uh, for investing in uh, Allside Corporation um, when you were a mere teenager. Amazing. Or, yeah. Amazing. But t tell us, if you would, please, about the year 1974 and your arrival at Tweedy Brown as a not quite 30-year-old aspiring investor in cheap stocks. There was a gentleman who's passed away by the name of Bill Ruane, uh, one of the founders of Ruane, Kniff, and Goldfarb. And... Uh, I was working uh, as a sort of a junior investment analyst for William Kent, who was partners with a firm in London by the name of, of uh, the name's escaping me, but he was also partners with, with Bill Berger uh, out in Denver and uh, Fleming, Robert Fleming and Company in, in London. And uh, I was doing work on advertising stocks. Bill was an expert on that. And he was interested in me maybe because my youth and said, what do you do with your own money? And I mentioned that I had this investment partnership, John Spears Associates, uh, that might have had 
a few hundred thousand dollars in it at the time. And um, that I bought these undervalued stocks, typically companies selling below networking capital, often with cash equal to more than the stock price. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, you should meet the people at Tweedy Brown. I, oh, my goodness. I see them in the pink sheets all the time. I think we're interested in the same stocks. So he introduced me to Ed Anderson. Ed and I went out to lunch, and uh, they decided that, um, well, at that time, I did, I, I had a, a, a side business also finding takeover candidates uh, for the wheeler dealers of, of the time, such as uh, Ron Perlman or uh, Arthur I think Arthur Cohen, uh, a number of different people that were in the newspaper quite a bit, buying and selling companies. So I would do research on companies and find companies that could be taken over, where the the, the shareholders, the insiders owned less than, typically less than 20% of the outstanding shares. So I would describe a company as company A, company B, company C, and I would send these out to these uh, active takeover type people. And uh, if they were interested, I'd have a meeting with them. I'd explain my fee structure. If you buy any shares, you get pay me. I think it was five, four, three, two, one, five percent of the first million, da 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 da, each additional million. And um, I made more money doing that than I'd ever made before. These commissions. Ron, uh, Ron Perlman did a takeover that paid me well. Um, and I think Tweedy thought that they could take me on board and not have to pay me that much because I'd bring right. in this, yeah. bring in this uh, takeover business. And I had also been doing, I'd been using them as my broker. Okay. After now I, I would like to uh, help the audience understand the, uh, uh, the state of things in the year 1974, because it, as if it all happened on a exoplanet of some kind, and um, the way to do this, I think, is to recall a speech that Benjamin Graham, so-called father of value investing, gave in 1974 to um, uh, New York Society of Security Analysts, some, greedy, some professional body, all right? And uh, the, the title of this thing was uh, so Renaissance uh, for Value. That was the way Barron's later uh, published the text of his talk. And one of the highlights of this speech was Graham saying that uh, uh, there are 100 stocks mostly listed in New York Stock Exchange, there's trading for less than net current assets. I think he said less than working capital, which means that the, uh, uh, as they put it, uh, as we put it, our, uh, we Japan bulls in the late 90s, that the business is free and you are buying it at a discount of cash, net cash. 100 of these babies. And Graham said uh, to the assembled analyst, he said, uh, I think I've, I've got the text of this thing here. Oh, yes, that uh, he and his partnership, that was Graham Newman was his partnership. Mm -hmm. And he said that um, uh, we have been, um, uh, this, he called them the sub-asset stocks. And um, uh, he said that uh, we've been making rather a specialty of this, buying stocks for less than the <laughs> net cash. And we we decided that uh, it's a very good thing. He said that your downside's rather protected. And uh, and he went on to say, well, it might be a, a little risky in doing only that. So this was the state of things in 1974. Wall Street was flat on its back, and uh, this audience, you could tell by Graham's remark, was rather skeptical of this business about buying stocks at less than net cash. They said a lot of people lost money doing this recently. And uh, Graham at one point says the following. He said, uh, quote, you are now hearing some of the old-time religion. You may not be converted, but it shouldn't do you any harm. 
He was such That's a great writer. Oh, God. A, well, Graham was one, of the, was one of the, uh, the best educated people ever on Wall Street. He got a classical education in, of all things, New York City public schools. And Graham contributed at the age of 17 an, an essay on how to improve the teaching of calculus to a professional mathematics journal when he was still in high school. Amazing. That's Benjamin Graham. Okay, Amazing. So, yeah. Okay, so I'm a little too windy about this. So this was Wall Street. It was, in retrospect, John D. Spears, this was the moment. And you were the man. You walked into Tweety Brown when they were giving away stocks. It was like it was raining soup, and only you guys had spoons. Everyone was out there with a fork. Exactly. We, we, the, the Nifty 50 was starting to fall apart in, in 1974, yeah. as I recall. The yeah. stocks at over 100 times earnings, and yeah. like a But what, what was it like? Well, you'd buy a, I mean, I remember a company called Safe Flight Instrument, which had about uh, five bucks in net cash. I don't know, it had something like an 80 to 1 current ratio, <laughs> no debt. At, we thought it was a great deal at three. And then we'd buy more at two fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I know how that works. <laughs> Got down to as low as dollar fifty, so it had five bucks a share in well, that. Did, did, you, did you lose heart on the way down? Well, no. We had so many different issues. I think we probably had about five hundred issues in the, in the Tweety Brown portfolio. Well, what? Why not a greater concentration? Given the self-evident, compelling, can't lose value proposition in some of these names. Why the uh, diversification? I think just a, a, a risk-averse actuarial approach, a sort of a statistical way of thinking about yeah. that, they, that. Maybe some of them won't work out. Maybe managements will take the cash yeah. and uh, blow it on an overpriced acquisition or something like yeah. that. So so that's how okay, we so, did it. So, okay, so this is, this is the way you began your... You, you had a lot of experience, as you indicated before, in, uh, in investing. You had two years in a self-directed course of study in finance and accounting that took you to advanced accounting. Um, so you, you got an early start in, uh, in your professional career, but still, it was, it was sensibly the beginning of uh, your life on Wall Street this year, 1974. And I'm going to present this proposition to you, John D. Spears, uh, Dean of Value Investing on Wall Street, that your career has been, student, has student been, of, of has been downhill since the time you walked in the door of Tweedy Brown, given, if we define it as a set of opportunities available to a value investor. It's been downhill since, since you started. Comment, please. Well, <laughs> what came to mind was the first time I ever met Warren Buffett was when he came into the the office at Tweedy Brown. And as you, I'm sure you know, we were the br primary broker, maybe not the only broker that accumulated his shares at Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, Buffett's so funny. He, he said, you know, like you, Ed Anderson said, you meet John Spears. He's joined us as an investment analyst and he works on takeover candidates and that side of kind of thing. And uh, Buffett said, well, you've peaked. You're at the right firm. You know, exactly. <laughs> you're at the right firm. We can't get any better, you know. So yeah, the luck of uh, the luck of good timing. It's yeah, amazing. Well, yeah, self-made luck. So um, let us not uh, dwell overly on what some listeners might view as a nostalgic and rather self-indulgent tour of yesteryear. If we have to, let's, let's leave get down. that. Yeah. <laughs> If we got it, let's get, let's get down to the present. Okay, so I'm going to skip, skip a few decades, and here we are. Um, what's the year, Evan? 2000-something? Uh, 23, I think. Already? <laughs> <laughs> a love of the past. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So, so uh, 2023 already. So um, let us say that the year 2023 bears slight resemblance to 1974 in the, um, the set of opportunities that the... Uh, uh, that the investor confronts. 
And two questions. Have you changed as if one could change one's temperament? But in what ways have you adapted, as investors must adapt, uh, to a new world? Let's start with that one. The world is so is inverted in some ways. New valuations seem not to matter. People disparage book value as, a, as an obsolete uh, measure of value, uh, tangible, intangible assets of the thing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a stock, is there not Evan called NVIDIA? I, I think there's only a stock called NVIDIA right now. Right, it only the, goes up. It's the one stock, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. But in this one stock is trading at, uh, I think, uh, uh, 48 times? Uh, I think over 40 times sales. What do you mean sales? It can't be. That, that, that's re <laughs> revenues, the top line. Yeah. If you assume the company has no uh, expenses, then that is also the earnings, but that is sales. Yeah, actually, that datum did appear in grants recently. Uh, all, all the expenses are <laughs> extraordinary. You just... <laughs> Uh, oh, what, one side note, when we wrote about it, it was 38 times sales and the stock has rallied since. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, how do you adapt? I'd say that it, it does go back to Graham. Graham often talked in, in security analysis uh, about uh, the value to a, another business or to a private owner, yeah, a whole right. company, a family that owns it. So I think that was the basic idea for our evolution when net current assets disappeared. Uh, toward looking at comparables, toward looking at acquisitions that had actually occurred, looking at various uh, investment banking type ratios, enterprise value to sales compared to, to uh, what companies have gone for in the same industry, enterprise value to EBIT, EBITDA. So, this, so, you're, so you're talking now about relative value compared to the to absolute bedrock, absolute values prevailing when you started. Well, if you define absolute value as, as takeover value. I mean, no, I'm, a, I'm, I'm talking okay. about net cash. Net cash. Oh, we, we went way beyond that. Yes. <laughs> I think the first stock was the uh, Crand company, Benny and Smith. It was selling a book value and about five times earnings. So it was earning a 20% return on equity. Okay. So that's over. But, but now you, you are comfortable, are you not, in looking at relative values and not insisting on, uh, on uh, you know, uh, book value, some such thing, or five or eight times earnings. You are prepared to pay 18 times earnings, let us say, if that is where the market is pricing other relative comparable things. I'd say today, 18 times would generally be pretty rich it's valuation for us, but definitely most of our stocks are earnings flow type valuation. Now, what does that it's, mean, earnings flow? Well, it, they're related to EBIT and I see. As yeah. opposed to as opposed to balance sheet. As yes. opposed to balance yeah. sheet. Well, now okay. we still do some balance sheet ones. We bought shares of Jefferies, not to you know, within the last few years. Yeah. When it was about I don't know sixty percent of tangible yes. book. Yeah. And insider buying was happening. Yeah. Um, in addition to looking for value in the the fifty states, you also invest abroad. Are you finding more opportunities outside of the U.S. or inside the U.S.? Uh, how does the value landscape look on a global basis? Well, we're we're not looking at. I mean, we're only looking at sort of the mostly the bottom layers. And we're also getting a lot of clues from insider buying. Uh -huh. So, you know, we have computer screens that would, for example, rank all companies on enterprise value to EBIT. And uh, we tend to be in the lower deciles. John, um, I, heard that I heard you say something that I haven't heard in a while. It's rather refreshing. In fact, it sounds melodious. And that is EBIT. You didn't say EBIT, da. Well, we look at both because, oh, I see. because, I because investment bankers look at they, yeah. they tend to never look at EBIT. Right. <laughs> it seems like it's always EBITDA. Everything's EBITDA. Yeah. Um, but but no, I mean, you know, depreciation is real. At, 
companies do spend money and replace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm certainly a depreciating a asset. Fr- you're, a friend of mine, uh, late, a late you friend. Have more, of, you have more runway than I do. Yeah, uh, well, a friend, late friend of mine, Michael Harkins, in 1987 or so, um, said, uh, have you noticed that the people who most talk about EBITDA are the guys who have second and third wives? <laughs> 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 okay. You, you started your career with an advanced study of uh, uh, accounting. How do you feel with accounting being so corrupted over the last two or three decades? I mean, when EBITDA was first kind of pushed by the John Malones and the TCIs of the world, it meant just earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation. Now it also means before the expenses we'd prefer you not to look at, also adding back in the cost savings we expect to get sometime in the future. Also, you know, it, it seems like numbers getting weaker and squishier over time. Well, we try to try to deal with that judgmentally. Think about it. Yeah. We, we look in many instances very, very carefully. Not in all instances. We still do some things that are more statistical and just yeah. take a, a diversified bet. What's Tweedy Brown's approach to momentum? I suppose you're big into momentum. You mean in our case, reverse momentum. In many, many instances, the stocks that we're interested in if you look at the chart, there's been a considerable recent decline. Well, you know, this this uh, raises the uh, the question of uh, of temperament and of conviction and the like. So, you know, all sorts of uh, bad jokes on Wall Street about uh, trade averaging down, right? You've heard them all. Uh, friends of mine who have made their lives in uh, what is still called value investing say that um, they actually, you know, they uh, they relish this. They contend. I'm not sure the degree of sincerity is in that contention, but they say um, if you know the situation well enough, you are more than happy to get a better price on the way down. You'll buy everything at the first price. Uh, tell us about your approach to that and about how you manage the emotions that might be attended upon watching your object of affection deteriorate in the eyes of the world and on the, on the screen in front of you. Well, unlike some, we don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Thank causes, you, John causes, Spears. That's a refreshing confession. It causes, it causes emotional pain in my case, <laughs> but I think that it's, the pain is eased by the, by the broad diversification. Um, as you know, typically, as as things that you bought tank, there's usually bad news. So there's often there's often a reassessment. Have the facts changed sufficiently that uh, we want to continue? How often do you choose I mean, not to? Um, I don't have any data on that. I just don't. I don't know. Sometimes, but 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 sometimes, yeah, yeah, and, and other opportunities. Um, you know, there's a stock we've gone into recently. In a, in a very diversified way, Paramount Global, which owns all the media assets, CBS, TV, and uh, they're getting into streaming and they're losing buckets of money on it. And uh, we first became interested when Sherry Redstone, the chairwoman, uh, daughter of of uh, Sumter Redstone, bought several million dollars worth of stock at uh, 37. Now it's 15. She bought some more. We bought some more. I think the premise still holds. I mean, if you subtract out the, uh, the the losses from the streaming business, the old legacy assets are still earning EBIT of about seven bucks a share, EBITDA of around eight, and uh, there's some debt, but uh, it's got got some potential. I don't think she'd be buying a few million dollars more stock at, at 15. If she she's, didn't think. she's probably buying because Tweety Brown's buying. Oh, yeah, she, <laughs> she called us. That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? 
<laughs> no, because Berkshire Hathaway's bought a lot of it. They're, they're, they're the number one shareholder, I think, besides her. What are your, what are your clients? I mean, it's, it's no front page news that uh, value investing is not uh, the thing, as it might have been years ago. Um, it's the bad thing. <laughs> well, I didn't I mean, want to say know, it. I didn't want to say it that way, that. John. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I was, I was, it's I was saying that's not the S and P five hundred. I was, I was being interviewed uh, uh, as I sometimes infrequently am, and um, said in response to my expression of interest in some value related thing, she said, um, "I've been hearing that for years. God, I can't. I don't want to hear that anymore." And I might have taken that as a sign of a bottom in the very idea of buying cheap securities. But no, they get, they get, they get more, they get cheaper and. Uh, and uh, so what, what, what I guess what an, an extraterrestrial visitor might ask in its, or its innocence is, what's wrong with looking for bargains? John, I, I have to know. <laughs> what's wrong? There's nothing wrong with looking <laughs> for bargains. There's, uh, but unfortunately, we've had a bad, a very bad period, as you, as you well know. It's been a rough time versus index funds. And, yeah. Well, how, how is the... Uh, how do you suppose that the uh, the growth of uh, semi-automatic or purely autonomous investing techniques, uh, bot and uh, computer-driven program, how is how has this affected uh, the very premise of value investing, which is the appraisal of individual situations, looking for value? If investing has turned into a robotic uh, hunt for um, you know momentum and other such so-called what's it called factors. Yeah, uh, factor investing momentum. Factor, yeah, is, is there some point at which the sheer, visible, undeniable appeal of a cheap security is going to, on its own, force a reversion to what might be called sense, common sense, or is this what? What's going to take to uh, John help? Me? <laughs> <What's>, <laughs> well, good performance is always going to attract. Right. And uh, so just change and, the, and people change are the, looking, of course, at relative relative performance, yeah. and uh, it's become even more that way. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you know, Buffett, uh, if you would please help us interpret for us uh, the uh, the evolution of Warren Buffett's thinking when he when he um, walked in the door at 1974. Brown, he might have been one kind of investor. He has turned in uh, to rather a more eclectic one, I would say. Certainly, one who was less. Uh, uh, I'm not sure he was ever dogmatic, but certainly one who was rather more inclined to uh, veer constructively from the protocols and doctrines of value investing as it's codified in this um, hefty volume security analysis. So how is, how is that, uh, what's he done? What might one learn from that? We all have been great, big students of, of, of Warren Buffett. And I think of the, the value to a private owner, that idea, which is in in security analysis uh, is certainly key to, to him. And uh, Charlie Munger introduced uh, Warren to a lot of, you know, interesting ideas about, about growth, the value of growth, uh, the value of uh, distributable cash flow, high return on tangible uh, net assets. So if you earn 100% on tangible net assets and uh, your ratio of, of uh, tangible net assets to to sales is 10 percent you know you most of your your cash flow is going to be distributable you'll be able to use it to buy something else and he thought that was pretty neat and uh, continued 
with that that idea, the high return on capital companies. But of course, it's hard to put Warren Buffett in any kind of a total box. I mean, he was selling oil companies a few years ago. Now he's bought them. You know, um, Japan strikes me as a, as a case study in ideas whose time never seemed to come until at last they arrive. Um, the late Alex Porter and I started something called Nippon Partners, along with Ken Shirley in 1998, when Japan was selling for, it seemed nothing. And uh, we built portfolios around and uh, we of not around, of um, companies selling for less than net current assets. and they, I did some of that myself also, they, but, but they, maybe they, at, a, at an even bigger discount. They uh, remained, many of them, at just that level of compelling valuation for many, many years. Uh, more recently, it seems that uh, Japan has rather caught on. Certainly, the Berkshire Hathaway people have uh, taken a cotton to it. Is Japan figuring in your overseas investing? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. We bought a number of stocks there. Yeah. Any, but any, more... more I mean, a lot of them have been below tangible book value with big, big net cash positions. Yeah. But but uh, but the earnings component is, has been also important. So you know, maybe valuing a company at at ten times EBIT. Yeah, any and other, adding and then adding in the cash. Any other countries that uh, might be uh, surprising either to the upside or the downside that you see in your international investigation? Well, we're primarily in developed markets yeah. and. Uh, the screening is across the board. We come across things all over the place. Yeah. I mean, we've done, we've been yep, yep, all over the place. How do you think about the valuation cycles in the U.S.? So you, you started your career just at the end of the junk market in the 1960s when valuations were high. Valuations came to absolute low levels in the, the 70s and early 80s. AQR recently came out with a paper saying that if you look at the U.S. market, yes, it has outperformed all of its global peers of the last 30 years, but the majority of that outperformance has just been because the U.S. multiples have gone up, and now the U.S. market looks expensive relative to the rest of the world. H how do you think about these kind of large valuation cycles, and how do you play them as both a, an investor inside the U.S. and uh, somebody who can allocate outside? I would say we don't look at it that broadly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't overthink it, maybe. You know, we're just looking... Kind of plowing away, looking for, or kind of looking at the conveyor belt of things <laughs> coming across our attention, and we're focusing on things that that uh, are more intriguing on a first cut basis, based on factors, on numbers, on uh, mm -hmm. you know, at low low enterprise value to EBIT, low uh, uh, low PE ratio, high earnings yield. Uh, so in a way, that's that's sort of a, a, another way that we think about it. We call it owner owner's earnings yield. So if we bought the whole company at this price, what kind of a yield would we get? You know, so that gets down to earnings yield. It gets down to also the cash flow that can be put in your pocket rather than reinvested because the business has gone up and for every 10% increase in uh, sales, you got to have half that go into uh, to a additional investment in the business. How many different names in your various portfolios, John? Well, over 100, I think. I'm not sure what, what the total is right now in the International Value Fund, but it might be approaching, I don't know, 140, maybe. How do you keep but up? I don't, but I don't keep... Bob Wyckoff is, uh, is, is better at answering those questions. How do you or they or your confreres keep up with that many names? Well, I think that um, there's some orientation probably toward sensibly being more in tune with quarterly quarterly information for our larger holdings than the, than smaller positions. Um, 
you know, kind of keeping keeping an eye on the on the news flow about the company. But I'm not sure. I'm, people people do it. I'm not that involved with that right now. Has Has Tweety Brown or you ever bought or sold a share based upon any macroeconomic datum? Never. No. No. I mean, that's background music. We read the newspaper, but but no, not not. It's it's always been on on value to a private owner concept or owner earnings yield. Yeah. Stock by stock. Yeah. What's available? What, what would be the, what would be the best opportunities given our screening? Uh, What would give us the best owner's yield? What's the biggest discount from an estimated private market value? We have uh, lived through, uh, perhaps we have uh, seen the end of uh, the great uh, bull bond market that began in, I guess, October, 1981 and has taken yields in the long end of the treasury curve from 15% to like nothing, and now it's a little bit more than nothing. Um, how do bonds figure into what you do? Ever bought one? Anticipate uh, fixed income investing? Well, I have a fair amount of cash, personally, and I've, I've been buying the uh, short-term T-bills, <laughs> but, but that's about it. This is a, oh, you said you wouldn't give us a tip, and here you have. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, What's know. the ticker on that, Devin? <laughs> You know, they would get five, four points, four yeah, point what's, eight, five. What's wrong with that? Yeah, not bad, not bad. But of course, so you don't have I, all your money in, in uh, Tweety Brown stocks. No, not all. No, no. I didn't mean to pry, John. No, that's okay. I've always had a lot of cash. There's, there, we have to because of taxes. I tend to got a lot of money in in the various Tweety Brown mutual funds and other entities. But uh, I also have individual securities that are often the same. Same stocks that are owned by the portfolios, and I have to get all kinds of approvals to do that. And uh, so, as a result, over the years, cash is is sort of built up. Yeah, okay, that's that's what we call in Brooklyn. We call it a high grade problem. <laughs> Obviously, uh, after taxes and inflation, it's uh, yeah, yeah, but not, still, you don't it's lousy. Yeah, uh-huh, but still, it's not uh, you know, wouldn't. Uh, uh, Use it to, in the incinerator. Uh, for, no, uh, no. Okay. You sleep well when in bad markets, and you feel envious in good markets. So you say you don't look for opportunities based off what's happening in the macro or what's the overall valuation of the market, but just what your screens produce, the, the conveyor belt. Exactly. What's the throughput of the conveyor belt today, and how does it look relative to other you know junctions in history? Like, are you seeing a lot of ideas come across that potentially are Tweety Brown uh, worthy? Or Yes, yes. I'd say the, the flow has been pretty good, and I think it seems just from reading and, and occasional uh, looking at screens that that uh, it's a bit of a two-tier market that in the United States that a lot of stocks are going down and we get a lot of ideas again by looking by insider buying tips. So the new low list and heavy insider buying. Those are good places to look. Okay. We'll, we'll be there. John D. Spears, thank you for being with us. What, what fun. Well, thank I you think, for the opportunity. Thank I you think for the for, great questions. I think for a man of so little experience, You've done very well. Henry French, thank you. Good sound. Evan, nice to see you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is Jim Grant on behalf of uh, Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air.